Right. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that once more we can come together to study your word. We know that you've given us a blessing for understanding and studying this book. And we want to take full advantage of that blessing so that we can glorify you more by understanding more of who you are in the words that you've given us to reveal yourself to us. So we ask, Lord, that you open our hearts and open our minds to understand uh, that we give you all the glory as we learn more about you. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so we're back in the book of Revelation. We're starting in on chapter four. And uh, this in our three-part outline, we're finally into the eschatological part. We study the things that were Christ glorified, the things that are the present church age, and now we're into the things that must come after these things. And uh, just for our ease, I've broken it into four parts uh, because this is gonna cover the next, uh, how many chapters? 19 chapters. So I've broken that into four different parts and part one is going to be commencing judgment. And that's going to take us to the first uh, interlude in the book of Revelation. So this is going to be chapters four through seven are going to be commencing judgment. So part one, uh, chapter four is going to be the throne room of God. And we'll see, uh, we'll see God glorified. Uh, in a very particular way compared to the ways that we've seen him in his throne room before. For example, in the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, we also get some glimpses into the throne room, but there are a few things different about this image, so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, here's a quote actually from our scripture reading this week, not from any other author, uh, but I think it sets the mood for what we'll be looking at tonight in the throne room of God. So it says, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of you, because of your will, they existed and were created. One of the issues in the book of Revelation as we move forward is going to be what gives God the right to punish the earth in this way. Uh, and, in such, and in such a horrific way from our perspective. But we're going to look um, at the courtroom of God here and see that he's not only qualified, but he has the divine prerogative um, to punish injustice. So we're going to start uh, with John's vision in the throne room. And this uh, section is going to be titled The One on the Throne. Let's see, I'll have Mackenzie, can you read for us first? Sure. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance thank you <clears throat> and holly could i have you read verses five and six out of the 
out from the throne camp come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind thank you so if you notice uh, in this first section we've skipped verse four um, verse four alludes to a much bigger topic, and we're saving that for last because we're going to get more information on that in verses nine through 11. Um, so don't let that bother you for now. Uh, right now, we just want to focus on God on his throne. So here, uh, the first part, verses one through the first half of two, uh, we'll call the call. Uh, that's going to be John's call into heaven. Uh, a lot of people read this verse and try to read the rapture into it uh, because John is being taken into heaven. Uh, the voice from heaven says, come up here. This is the same uh, words from heaven that will come down in uh, chapter 11, I think verses 13, when God resurrects and calls up his two witnesses. Uh, but this is, I don't think, speaking of the rapture. I think that would be reading into this. Uh, we, we discussed last time uh, verses that deal with the rapture. That would be in Thessalonians and uh, 1 Corinthians. But here, I think this is just the call of the prophet. We see this uh, consistently with the prophets in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. Uh, often they will actually, uh, at least in spirit, enter the, uh, enter the heavenly spheres. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, because it says down uh, in this first part of verse two that immediately he was in the spirit. Um, so I, I read this to be an, uh, what is it? An ecstatic dream is what they call it, where the body physically remains on earth, but the senses are transferred into, uh, into heaven. And I, I would read Isaiah six in that way as well, where the, the body would stay on earth, uh, but the consciousness and the spirit, in other words, enters heaven. But uh, we're seeing a door standing open here. Oftentimes, when we look at uh, verses that deal with heaven being open, we're seeing them in a progressive tense where, uh, for example, when the windows of heaven were open at Christ's uh, baptism, it doesn't start with them in the open position and then uh, or it, yeah, it doesn't start with them open, but we actually see in the verb that they are being open. Well, here, when we come to this, now this door is standing open. Uh, this would probably make us think of a couple uh, verses back when Christ is telling his church that the door of salvation is standing open to them, uh, that no one can close that. Here, the door is standing open for John, welcoming him up. Um, to see the things that must take place after this. That word must uh, carries even more weight in Greek. It's the verb day, uh, which speaks of di divine prerogative, meaning uh, there is no option but for these things to come uh, to take place. And the voice that is speaking to him, John refers back to uh, the beginning of his book when he says that it was the voice, uh, what are his words there? 
says, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said. So that comes again from chapter one, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet. Um, so he's saying that first voice, the same one is speaking to him again. And he says, come up here, I will show you the things that must take place. Uh, and this is the third part of our outline then. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Uh, so this is part three. He's saying, now I'm going to uh, be filling you in on this information that he's already predicated in chapter one, verse 19. All right, so next we're going to see the creator on his throne. Uh, this is going to be the second part of verse two and verse three. And John says, behold, that means look. Uh, pay attention to these things. A throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. So let's look first at the throne. First, we'll notice that God is not actually. Uh, detailed here on the throne. We're not seeing the face of God. We're not seeing the body of God. We're, we're being told what he's like. And what we're being told he's like is uh, more a description of the glory around him than actually his physical being. Uh, that's consistent with Isaiah 6 as well. We don't see God sitting on the throne. We see, uh, we see the glory around the throne. And that's because God is a spirit. So he is very much so on his throne but he doesn't have the same form that we have. Uh, Christ is the visible form of God. Uh, God is spirit. And that's uh, exactly the revelation that John gives to the woman at the well. Uh, when she asks where we'll worship, uh, uh, where should we worship on this mountain or on this? Uh, Jesus responds to her, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. His throne also speaks of authority. Uh, being that he is on his throne, he has authority over what? Uh, that becomes the question then uh, that is answered in this chapter. But we see God on the throne of authority back in Isaiah's day as well, and that was about 600 AD or BC. So it says, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Uh, I can't think of any more than one single instance where God is not pictured on his throne. That one instance would be where God uh, meets Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, in all other instances in scripture where we see the actual uh, being of God, he is seated on a throne. Uh, and that speaks here to the throne that is over the entire universe, all of God's creation. And this is a throne that always has been, um, continues to this day, and always will be God's. It'll never be in question. Uh, the I guess, large thrust of the conflict in uh, Revelation is going to be the throne of the earth. 
So God is sitting on his eternal throne over the universe while the throne of the earth is um, currently being occupied by Satan, the usurper. However, it has always been Satan's longing to take this eternal permanent throne of God as well. And uh, the throne of the earth, in his mind, um, is a stepping stone to an end that is ultimately impossible for him. But uh, in his pride and in his hubris, he doesn't understand that. Uh, so in Isaiah 14, he speaks about Satan's fall from heaven uh, being by his pride. So it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So seeing God seated on his throne establishes that authority, that it is his and always will be his, and that that throne has never been in question. Uh, that becomes particularly important because of Satan's ambition for that throne. Uh, but that throne is not in question in the book of Revelation. He continues, those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not follow his prisoners to go home? The fulfillment of this verse here is going to take place at the end of the book of Revelation, where we see the enemy, Satan, actually finally conquered by Jesus Christ. And when we look upon him, uh, he will be so feeble and weak that we won't be able to fathom that he was the one who shook the kingdoms all this time. Now, we also noticed a few stones around the throne of God. Uh, and interestingly enough, those stones are actually mentioned um, in Satan's pre-fall uh, state. So um, here this is speaking of the process of, um, I guess, Satan's pride, uh, what he had pride over and how he fell. So it says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So Satan's original state was uh, glorified even higher than most other angels, possibly all angels. Um, Michael, the archangel, may have uh, retained a place higher than him. But uh, 
we understand through scripture that Satan was actually in charge of worship. He was the worship leader of the angels, essentially. And God had glorified him in much beauty. Uh, and it's in that that he had pride and he fell, uh, thinking himself possible, uh, able to become greater than God. But these stones and all the glory of God will remain with him on his throne. And uh, these are the three colors that are spoken of here. We've got the, uh, the jasper, which for us is a rather opaque stone. But in the book of Revelation, it'll speak of jasper and other places. And it says that it's clear like water or like glass. So it probably looks more like a sapphire. Uh, the sardius stone came from Sardis, one of the churches that we saw already. And uh, it's also call called a carnelian. Uh, this is a ruby red stone. And then we've got the green stone, the emerald. Now, it speaks of a rainbow around the throne. Uh, however, the Greek is kind of fuzzy here, whether or not the rainbow is green like emerald or whether the throne is green like emerald. Uh, the, the case and gender of the nouns could go either way. So uh, it's possible that there's a green rainbow up in heaven. Um, but I, I would uh, probably defer to the regular, uh, what is it, seven-colored rainbow with the green emerald representing the throne itself. And uh, Ezekiel saw this as well. When the throne of God uh, was shown to him while he was uh, standing on the bank of the Euphrates River, uh, near Babylon in captivity. So it says here, uh, now above the expanse that was over their heads, that's the four living creatures that we'll see later, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli, that's a blue stone, in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal, that look like fire all around with it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. These uh, stones that are mentioned, the jasper and the carnelian, or the jasper and the ruby, uh, these are also the first and the last of the 12 stones that represent Israel. So in Exodus 28, 17 to 20, the high priest is told to wear uh, a table with stones on his chest. And it, each of the 12 stones will represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here, uh, you shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall uh, be a row of ruby. Then later on, we see that in the last stone, jasper is the last one here. Uh, so the ruby would represent the tribe of Reuben. He was the first of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he lost his uh, inheritance, I guess, by having bad relations with um, his father's wife, but not who was his mother. Uh, 
Jacob had four wives. So uh, that would represent Reuben. And the last one, the Jasper, would represent Benjamin. But Reuben, uh, the name in Hebrew means firstborn son. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. So we see that these two stones possibly mean uh, from the beginning to the end of Israel, uh, because God is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it also uh, may be representative here of Jesus Christ himself, uh, because he is the first begotten son, the only begotten son of God. Um, and he's also the son of his right hand. In the book of Ephesians, we see, and in the book of Acts, we see that Christ is ascended to the right hand of God. These are also the stones mentioned in the New Jerusalem, uh, which will be in the uh, new creation in the eternal state. So it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone cut of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and a and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And then we get the stones mentioned here again. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, all the way down to the 12th, which was here, amethyst. All right, so God's faithfulness. Uh, this, if you had a chance to watch our foundations video on the Noahic Covenant, this would make uh, possibly a bit more sense. But the Noahic Covenant was a covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. It was a promise that he would not destroy the earth again with uh, a flood. However, he also gave some... Uh, instructions to man in how to govern himself in this covenant. And we'll see that one of the reasons God has the divine right and the divine necessity to judge the earth is for failure uh, in this Noahic covenant. One of the uh, covenant instructions was, uh, I guess, what we would call capital punishment. Uh, but what it, uh, what it gave to the nations was the ability to govern themselves. Uh, it's actually a, a nationalistic mandate. And it's a mandate that was given to mankind to protect himself from sin. And uh, we'll see in the book of Revelation a move towards a one world government. This goes against uh, the Noahic covenant. And you can also see that in Genesis chapter 11, where there was immediate rebellion against this covenant, where they came together at Babel. And that city of Babel has never been fully squashed. The spirituality of Babel has continued on. And uh, it'll be mystery Babylon here uh, later in the book of Revelation. But here's God's covenant that he made with Noah. He says, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud 
and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy the all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, we're not told whether this rainbow around the throne existed prior to this covenant. Um, so there's two options here. Either God put part of his glory into the sky to show us his faithfulness toward us every time he brings the rain but doesn't flood the earth uh, because uh, we, we deserve destruction more than it rains. Uh, but it's also possible that God put the rainbow in heaven around his throne for a constant reminder to, uh, as well of his own faithfulness. That rainbow is a part of the glory of God because it shows the aspect of his faithfulness towards us, his long suffering towards us, and his mercy. So we see an image of mercy around the throne as well, and also the promise and reminder um, that God has not destroyed all flesh and he will not destroy it with water. Uh, but we will see that in the book of Revelation, it will be destroyed through fire. All right. Part three here is then the court. So around the throne, um, there are some beings. And we'll take a look at what those are. First, we hear that there are flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Then we see seven lamps that are burning before the uh, throne. And these are called the spirit of God or the spirits of God. And then before the throne, there is a sea of glass like crystal. And then in the center and around the throne, there are living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So starting with thunder and lightning. In the book of Revelation, these are always used in conjunction with the outpouring of judgment. Uh, it indicates power and it indicates wrath. This is the first time we see it here in Revelation in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 6, we begin the seal judgments, and those seal judgments will begin with thunder and lightning. Um, in 8, we begin the trumpet judgments. That will begin with thunder and lightning. Uh, 11, I believe this is an interlude where we see thunder and lightning um, in a general sense of wrath and power. And then in 14, we have the bold judgments, and those begin with, uh, those will be outpouring of judgment on the earth. 16 is a special judgment on Babylon, and that is the fall of Babylon, again, the outpouring of judgment, and in 196, it uh, appears in conjunction with the return of Jesus Christ. And the seven lamps. If you remember back in chapter one, uh, we saw seven lamp stands. Uh, so these seven lamp stands, we're told these are the seven churches. Now, these lamps and these lamp stands are not the same thing, but they are related. So just to clarify that, that these seven lamps before the throne are not representative of the seven churches before the throne. Um, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is what this, these seven lamps represent. And the Holy Spirit is not often embodied um, in any particular form, but we do get a few examples where it is. For example, at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes on the form of a dove coming down out of heaven. 
And as well here at Pentecost, uh, it takes on the form of tongues of fire. So we read, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The unique experience of the church is the physical indwelling um, of the Spirit of God. This is not something that Israel had. Uh, this is the comforter that Jesus Christ sent after he ascended into heaven. And it was the confirmation that he made it there to heaven because he said, when I go there, I'll send the comforter. Uh, so he sent the comforter here and it came upon the 12 apostles and indwelt them. And that uh, is consistent with what we see with the 12 lamp stands. In each lamp stand, there is a lamp, the Holy Spirit resting in the church, uh, in the body of the believer. And again, these uh, seven lamps are consistent with the sevenfold nature of the Spirit. Um, here we've got seven genitive phrases, um, attributes of the Spirit. Uh, it is the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So these are seven different facets, and these are ways that the Holy Spirit provokes us from within as Christians um, for our sanctification. Oops, let me pause this real quick. Uh, I've got a one-minute video here of a teacher from Duluth Grace Bible Church uh, over in Minnesota. And uh, I just liked what he had to say here about the spirit being in heaven at this time. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits. If the restrainer then has been removed from earth, how are people going to get saved in the tribulation? The restrainer Holy Spirit is the one on earth. What's going to happen on earth for how do people get saved? Remember, in the Old Testament, his presence was localized, even though he's obviously omnipresent. People will get saved in the tribulation the same way they got saved in the Old Testament. Or the same way God saved in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will draw and convict people. He'll regenerate them. But he's no longer going to be baptizing people into the body of Christ because the church has ended. The church in heaven. It should not surprise us to see this whole see the Holy Spirit around the throne. So what he's talking about here is we see now the Holy Spirit in a physical form in heaven. And uh, it's again consistent with our understanding of the nature of the church, where the Holy Spirit and the church have become um, one by the Holy Spirit indwelling the body of the believer. So when the believer is taken up to heaven, so goes the physical uh, nature of the Spirit and his current function of baptizing believers into the body of Christ. Now, there will be salvation during the tribulation, but it'll be salvation in the same way as there was before Christ. Christ did a special work uh, on earth in his church and uh, it's easy for us being in the age of the church to look at all of the Bible and say that there would be continuity uh, between um, even Adam 
and anyone in the tribulation period that being saved would mean they're part of the church. Um, but this is not consistent with scripture. The church began at Pentecost and the church ends at the rapture. Um, but the church is not the only uh, body of people that God has worked through um, to bring his word to the earth. All believers can only be saved through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, it is on that basis, on that foundation, that all can be saved. Uh, on no other basis can anyone ever be saved. So even Adam, his salvation is worked out through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Anyone under the law in the Old Testament, the law could not save them. Only the blood of Jesus Christ um, can be that basis of their salvation. So um, I've heard it said, uh, I, I think it's, it's possibly reductive. It would definitely need to be worked out a bit more here. But they'll say that in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. And in the New Testament, we look back to the cross. Um, but we looking back on the cross, we have complete revelation. The progress of revelation ends with John's letter um, of revelation. Uh, so we in the church have the complete body of scripture. We understand who the person of Christ is. This isn't uh, something that they had in the Old Testament. They had promises. They had the promise of a seed um, who would redeem them. They had the promise of an heir to the throne of David who would redeem them. Uh, they had the promise of a Messiah. But they didn't have the full revelation of who the person of Christ is, God in man or in the form of man being fully God and fully man, this is our, uh, our uh, unique position as the church that we get to fully understand these things. And uh, another unique position that we have is being part of this special body that is the body of Christ um, in the church. So that is a unique, uh, a unique body. So the Holy Spirit functions differently with us than it does with those from the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament saints, and it will for the tribulation saints. Um, but that does not mean that the Holy Spirit ceases to be omnipresent. He doesn't cease to convict the unbeliever uh, towards faith in Christ. All right, and then the sea of glass uh, that is before the throne. <clears throat> and uh, this one, actually, I, I just came across this today. And uh, I was having a hard time with this sea of glass and what it is, but I, I think here, this kind of gives a good answer to that. Uh, here's from Exodus 24, uh, when Israel is confirming their covenant with God. Already they've come to Mount Sinai, they've been rescued out of Egypt by God. Uh, God has been speaking with them audibly from the mountain. Uh, one of my professors said, if you had a tape recorder, and you push record there at Mount Sinai, you would have recorded the voice of God. Um, he was speaking audibly with them. Eventually, this audible uh, commanding of God would terrify them, and they asked for um, God to speak to Moses, and Moses would speak to them. But at this point, they're still receiving uh, the voice of God. And this is, uh, this is the covenant confirmation or affirmation by Israel, and immediately after of uh, those, uh, the priests would be uh, sanctified here. So here in Exodus 24, it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. 
And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now, uh, in the book of Judges, uh, the mother and father of uh, Samson, they were worried that they had seen God himself when an angel came to, uh, to them and said that they were going to have a son. And Samson's mother reasoned with his father that it can't possibly have been God, because if it had been God, we would have died. Uh, that it's impossible to stand in the presence of God and not die. But here we see Israel standing in the presence of God. And now we know from other places in Exodus where uh, Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock because he couldn't look at the form of God and live. Uh, so we know that uh, they're not seeing the actual being of God, but likely they're seeing what John is seeing here, the glory that surrounds God. Uh, so here is the beginning of the covenant uh, with Israel that began them being a nation. Uh, we could look at the Mosaic covenant a lot like uh, a constitution for a nation. It is a conditional covenant. There are, uh, there are 613 laws for them to uphold. Uh, so there, there is something for Israel to be doing on their side of this contract. That's different from the Abrahamic covenant, which has no condition. It's an unconditional covenant. But here is how God has planned to, uh, to work through the nation of Israel. And his purpose in working through the nation of Israel was uh, to bring about a throne on this earth. Because if we remember back to Genesis 3, Adam was usurped in his position as a ruler over this earth. And Satan occupies that position. And through this nation of Israel would come Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne um, of this earth and then hand it over to the Father in, after the millennial kingdom. So here we see the inception of this throne on the earth over which Christ will eventually sit. And it, uh, here we see that uh, there is something that looks a lot like a lake or a body of water, but it's like pavement of sapphire, so clear bluish pavement clears the sky itself. Well, later, uh, we see that the priests have to be cleansed uh, or consecrated before uh, meeting the Lord in the temple. So it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they enter the tent of meeting. They shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in, in smoke a fire of sacrifice to the Lord. So we see that this laver or basin of water is placed before the tent of meeting in the temple. Uh, in 2 Kings 16, and also in a place in 1 Kings, uh, they refer to this labor that's before the tent of meeting as a sea. And it would be a pretty big basin. I don't know if any of you have been to the Vatican, but they've got this giant pool of water um, in one of their 
museum rooms. And it's got to be about at least 10 feet, if not 15 feet wide. Uh, it feels like the size of a pool. And I think that's about the size of what this laver was. It's a pretty big basin of water. Uh, but here's Uriah, the son of David, um, who did not do well, according to the Lord. Uh, this is one of the last um, things were, that's recorded him doing, uh, one of the evil kings of Judah. So it says, so Uriah, the priest, or I guess the priest, uh, did according to all that King Ahaz, Ahaz is the son of David, sorry, uh, all that King Ahaz commanded. Then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the labor from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen, which were under it, and put it on a pavement of stone. So it's, uh, this labor is often called a sea in the Old Testament, at least two places that I found this afternoon. And uh, here's what Tom Constable has to say about this sea of glass before the Lord. And I think it holds up with uh, what we've seen in Exodus and in the histories of Israel. He says, the clear glass-like sea before the throne may represent the need for cleansing before approaching God. The laver, called a sea in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament, ergo 1 Kings 7.23 at all, served the need for cleansing in the Israelite tabernacle and temple. Perhaps the fact that this sea is solid indicates that those who can approach God's throne have attained a fixed state of holiness by God's grace. Uh, so I, I think he hit the nail on the head there. Uh, this sea um, that is before the throne of God is solid. It's crystal, um, as solid as Christ's atoning work over those he's anointed and resurrected here. And again, this is consistent. Um, this uh, matching of the temple with the throne room of God we read in Hebrews 8, 4 through 5, it says, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. God was very specific with Moses when he gives him instructions of how to organize the temple. And I think that's because he's giving him a physical representation of the throne room of God. And it's, uh, I don't have a, a drawing here of the throne room of God because we don't have very detailed uh, information about what that looks like other than what we're reading here in Revelation. I think that's about the most detailed account we have. But we do see things that are very similar. We see the laver before the throne. We see the seven lamps before the throne. The throne itself being the Ark of the Covenant, where the Shekinah glory sits. Um, and this, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was actually designed as a throne or as a chair. Um, I was pretty interested. Um, when I was in Korea, I went to one of their uh, museums. And the throne that the king of Korea sat on looks an awful lot like the Ark of the Covenant. It's that box shape. Uh, with rods that you can carry it on. Now, there's a lot of interesting stuff that could be said about what happened to the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Um, I wrote a paper two or three years ago about the possibility that one of those tribes of Israel ended up on the Korean or the Japanese archipelago um, and brought with them some pretty interesting 
uh, traditions, one being the Tori gates in Japan, these red gates through which when you pass through, you're protected by the spirits. It's uh, pretty reminiscent of Passover, where the, it, the Jews in Egypt painted their doorposts with blood. And when they were secure inside those doorposts, the spirit of death would pass over them. As well, they've got a tradition on Mount, uh, I think it's Muria or something, something like Mount Moriah, uh, where they actually have a tradition of a priest taking a young boy up to the mountain and uh, acting as if he were about to sacrifice him. And another priest stops him and they'd sacrifice an animal. Uh, it's very reminiscent of Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, so there are a lot of these Jewish traditions that show up in other places around the world. Uh, I guess that's, that's a, a bit of trivia there that's fun, but essentially my point is um, what was given to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, especially in the instructions for the temple, is very reminiscent of what we see to be true about the throne room of God. So in order to understand God's throne in heaven, we can look at God's throne on earth, uh, where he put himself over the nation of Israel. But we have to recognize that it's just a copy and a shadow of the things that are true and real in heaven. Thank you.